Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Your divisive political ponderings are irrelevant. Stick to the science. Nature received this comment on Facebook after we published a story about the damage Donald Trump had done to science. Why am I sharing it with you? Well, I want to know if they're right. Science and politics benefit from the perception that science is objective and separate. Psychologists and sociologists and historians will argue over how possible it is to completely remove yourself from that. Saying that the two spheres should be separate, I think, misses the point. Science is pure, right? But the more you get into the kind of complex, value-laden problems of politics, the less it's true. I'm Nick Howe, and welcome to Stick to the Science, a mini-series in which I'm going to explore the relationship between science and politics, and ask... Where does nature fit in? Nature as a whole has an important role to play in that interface. Now, you might still be wondering why I'm talking to you about this. It seems that many of our readers think this is a done deal. Science and politics should be kept separate, and vice versa. So why talk about it? Well, the thing is, is that nature does discuss politics, and that isn't an accident. It is a very considered choice which we believe is the right one. And yet, when we cover things people deem politics, we tend to get quite a strong response. And we can't just ignore that. After all, science and politics are not exactly easy bedfellows. I'm Anna Jay and I'm the Chief Editor for Digital and Engagement for Nature magazine. As the holder of the Keys to Nature's social feed, Anna is a bit like nature's front line when our readers have opinions. And she is well versed in the politics problem. So... A lot of the responses that we see take place on social media and social media is its own special kind of ecosystem where you get all kinds of people saying all kinds of things. So whenever we cover anything that touches on politics in some way, we're primed to expect a special kind of response. They kind of fall into various categories. They're people 
who disagree with the politics of a particular individual or party or something along those lines, if it's if it's an overtly political piece of content. Stay out of politics. Trump 2020. And the other side that we often get is something in the lines of, nature is a science publication. Why are you straying into this territory? And science is not political. Science is fact. Keep opinions out of a science page. This page should be about studies with empirical data. One of the things that I think is particularly important is being able to have empathy for your readers. And that's definitely been a helpful way to think about things when we're about to publish something, to just step back and read it from someone else's position. But we we can't test everything with everyone. That doesn't happen until we hit publish and it goes out into the world and we get the response. We've had missteps in the past, but we try and learn from them. And we try to make sure that whenever we're covering things, we're covering them from the most important angle that's the most appropriate for the scientific community that we're serving. In this episode, I'm going to focus in on one of these assertions. The idea that politics isn't nature's territory. That as a science publication, political matters are simply not in scope. Stick with the nature thing. Politics, not your forte. That moment when academia and scientific publishers become political. Politics should not feature in nature's aims and scope. Nature is often accused of changing its approach on politics, of bowing to some new political pressure, of striving to be woke. But dig into nature's archive, and the fact is, from its very beginning, nature had a close relationship with politics. Nature, Volume 1, Thursday, November the 4th, 1869. Science teaching in schools. The claims of physical science on a priori grounds to a fair place in the course of schoolwork have been abundantly vindicated. And this is an article from the very first edition of Nature, promoting, in typical Victorian vernacular, the idea that science should be taught at schools. With 150 years of hindsight, that perhaps doesn't sound very contentious. But this was before there was any large-scale state education in the UK, and existing schools were stratified by social class. In the following year, in an editorial, Nature went further, promoting scientific education for women. Nature, Volume 2, Thursday, June 16th, 1870. The Scientific Education of Women. The feature which will probably most clearly mark the year 1869 in the view of the future historian of education will be the definite recognition of the rights of woman to all... Over the first ten years, Nature's editor, Norman Lockyer, wrote around 65 editorials campaigning on political topics from research endowments, scientific reform, the rise of German science and education. This type of political content was enthusiastically followed up by Nature's second editor, Sir Richard Gregory. Politics was absolutely Nature's arena. That is until, perhaps surprisingly, World War II. The Second World War, interestingly, has a pretty unexpected impact on the way that Nature talks about politics. This is Melinda Baldwin, a historian of scientific publications who very literally wrote the book on Nature. So in 1939, right before the start of the Second World War, Nature gets two new editors. Sir Richard Gregory retires and his uh, former assistants, A.J.V. Gale and Jack Brimble, become co-editors of Nature. And so almost immediately, 
Brimble and Gale are thrown into the crucible of having to publish nature during the war. So London is being bombed, there are paper shortages, and so they're just kind of constantly running nature in crisis mode. This would be the start of nature's one and only apolitical phase. They start supporting an editorial regime that tends not to take political stances, and I think it's because they learned to run nature in this crisis mode, that they just don't have the time to court and manage the kind of controversy that Lockyer and Gregory had sought out and supported. Whether out of resource-strapped necessity or editorial providence, Gale and Brimble's apolitical stance continued for almost 30 years. Until 1966. When John Maddox comes into the editor's chair. Maddox is a physicist, he comes from a journalist's background, and Maddox really sees an opportunity to shake things up at nature and make it exciting to read again. And he wants to do that in a couple of ways. First off, he wants to recruit the most exciting scientific papers to nature that are going to create a stir that are going to attract interest, that are going to attract subscribers. And he also really wants to enliven the news sections and get them taking stances again. So Maddox actively courts the kind of interest and controversy that Brimble and Gale had avoided. Now, this appetite for controversy certainly wasn't shared by all of Maddox's successors. But nature never resumed the apolitical stance of the mid-20th century, right up to today. When science is threatened by politics, we will stand up for science and scientists. This is Magdalena Skipper, Nature's current editor-in-chief. Nature is a journal of science, of research, first and foremost. As such, it doesn't have specific political allegiance or a political agenda. But we do talk politics, we do cover politics, when politics affect research, only in the context of research. If politics and politicians curb scientific autonomy, let's say, unduly influence its direction, remove the support of experts or expertise, or maybe thwart global collaborations, science itself suffers. And, and it's at times like this that nature needs to stand up for science for the experts. This stance goes all the way back to nature's mission statement, which has broadly remained the same for the past 151 years. First, to serve scientists through prompt publication of significant advances in any branch of science, and to provide a forum for the reporting and discussion of news and issues concerning science. Second, to ensure that the results of science are rapidly disseminated to the public throughout the world in a fashion that conveys their significance for knowledge, culture and daily life. There's a bit in the mission statement where it speaks to us offering a forum for a discussion of issues that are pertaining to science. And so that's exactly what policy is. And of course, Arguably, now more than ever, we talk about why science and, and research and discoveries, and including medical research, are so relevant for policymaking and why policymaking has to be evidence-based. And of course, that evidence is provided by science. So absolutely, we don't just talk about research itself and the, the outcome of research as an activity. We talk about the implications. So these are all issues which are immediately adjacent to science as an activity, but nevertheless, in my view, inseparable. 
Nature, Volume 586, Tuesday, 6th of October, 2020. Why nature needs to cover politics now more than ever. Science and politics are inseparable, and nature will be publishing more politics news, comment and primary research in the coming weeks and months. With a few exceptions, nature has always been involved in the political debate and has reported on politics. From nature's perspective, it is nothing new and it remains as much a part of our editorial goals as ever. But of course, that is only one part of this puzzle. For many of you, whether nature covers politics or not isn't really the question. Instead, the real question is, should it? When does politics become relevant to science? That's coming up next. Historians of science tend to reject the argument that science is apolitical. So was there a connection between science and politics? There was an intimate connection. Politics shapes science in a whole bunch of ways, right? I don't believe that science exists in a vacuum. The assumption that they are separate is not, I think, the helpful one. For the rest of this episode, I'm going to focus in on one idea, separation. The idea that science and scientific institutions are fundamentally separate from politics and political institutions. And furthermore, that there should be a divide, the proverbial church and state. To get to the heart of this, again I'm going to start by looking back. Here's Stephen Shapin, a historian of science from Harvard University in the US. I think the ideal, in terms of deep historical past, probably comes from the idea of religious separation from the world as a way of producing authentic and valuable knowledge. And here it's very important to bear in mind that the first universities are religious institutions. The cloisters of Oxford and Cambridge are cloisters. So they're a visible reminder of that separation from the world. So it's an ideal This separation ideal comes up a lot when nature covers politics. My bad. I was always under the impression that science was about the discovery of truth. Didn't understand it was about politically corrected truth. Sad. Science is objective and evidence-based. The scientist doesn't matter as much as the evidence they present. But according to Stephen, the idea that science and politics were separate throughout history is murky at best. For him... Even the concept of what a government or a state is, is inseparable from science. You think of things like maps. Think of things like statistics. How many people? What kinds of people? What diseases do they suffer from? What do they die from? This is what it is to be a state. And it's also what it is to do science. And Stephen is not alone in his position. Here is David Edgerton, a historian from King's College London. The assumption that they are separate is not, I think, a helpful one. And of course, I'm not saying that science and policy, academic research and policy are the the same thing. Clearly, they are not. But the assumption that there is this thing called science, which is independent from, but sometimes interacts with politics or or policy, is more wrong. We need to recognise that, um, I mean, going back to the the very beginnings of science, as it comes to be called, the connections 
between this particular kind of knowledge and the state are intimate. You know the expression that scientists are on tap, but not on top? They're on tap for centuries. One of the major sources of both problems and support for scientific inquiry in the early modern period in Britain is the Admiralty. And this absorbs enormous amounts of science. So it's Samuel Pepys, the, the diarist, is also Clerk of the Admiralty in the 17th century. And he is at the time president of the Royal Society. His name is on the title page of the Mathematical Principles of Natural Philosophy by Isaac Newton. So that relationship was intimate. This continues across the world right up to the 20th century. So the Manhattan Project, which is probably the greatest techno-scientific project of the 20th century happens within government. It's not a question of relationship between politics and science. Science is happening within the state, within the political structure of the state. And yet, despite centuries of documented intimacy between science and state, the ideal of clean separation persists. Why? Well, perhaps the answer lies in the word should. It isn't about what actually happens, it is about what should happen. But who decides what science's relationship with politics should be? Many of the comments we receive talk about the fact that science is objective, and so science shouldn't talk politics because politics is not objective. But what science is, well, that's a slippery thing when you try to pin it down. How do you define science? That's coming up. oh my God, all our certainties have completely crumbled. To cut a long story short, the term science has got a a kind of a robust but problematic meaning at present. You have to kind of agree by particular rules of behaviour. You might sign up to particular philosophies. For example, pursuit of truth. While reporting this series, I've spoken to a lot of people, researchers, journalists, political scientists, historians, policy experts, and I've asked them what science is. And across the board, well, you get answers like this. Well, that's that's a rather big question. I, um, I, well, what is science? So answering the question of what is science is particularly challenging. Maybe you're saying science is what scientists do, uh, but that then invites the question of what, what is a scientist? When people can't even agree on what something is, I thought it best to turn to a specialist, someone who's thought a lot about this sort of question, a philosopher. So I do pose this question at the beginning of my courses to my first year students. And of course, they all have a very clear cut, opinionated view of what is science. And by the end of the course, uh, they're all like, oh my God, all our certainties uh, have completely crumbled. This is Chiara Ambrosio, a philosopher and historian of science. The problem of what is science is known in philosophy as the demarcation problem. How do you find the edge of where science begins and ends? There isn't really a clearly agreed upon answer. 
But many think that in practice, you'll know science when you see it. This is based on the philosophy of Ludwig Wittgenstein. So Wittgenstein would say, think about the word game. It's really hard to define what counts as a game. You've got very different kinds of games, you know, card games, ball games, table games. And we know when we're playing a game whilst we're playing it. And we sort of work out with the rules of the game. And of course, we can establish family resemblances between different kinds of games without reducing the one to the other. And this kind of idea has been sort of adopted into current uh, attempts at defining science. Regardless of science's fluid definition, there are some core concepts, namely objectivity and empiricism. They are absolutely crucial. They are. I would never dare to deny that. The problem is that both objectivity and empiricism become somewhat unobtainable when we consider humans are performing science. It's impossible for humans to be completely objective. We are fallible creatures. And as for empiricism, well, that is another word with a tricky definition. It's got a long history and has meant different things to different people at different times. So then you need to go one step down and you need to think about why is it that scientists are actually investing so much in uh, objectivity? And I think it's more about uh, a matter of accountability. It's a matter of transparency. It is a matter of, again, like responding to a social context that requires accountable explanations. and accountable modelling practices, for example. And I think that's where negotiating what is the best way to decide which values we pursue as a scientific community becomes very, very important. In science, there is a process that aspires to objectivity and empiricism, often referred to as the scientific method. This allows scientists to be transparent and say, this is what our best understanding of this is, and this is why we think that. It's then there for other scientists to probe and challenge. The process, though, is inseparable from the institutions and people who are a part of it. Even just the architecture of a building somehow affects the kind of science that is carried out in that building. It's difficult to characterise science without including the people and places where it is done. But those people and places, well, they exist within society. And that society is shaped by politics. And so, by extension, is science. Scientists are not just these neutral characters that kind of uh, levitate like ghosts in the corridors of scientific institutions. Um, They are actually like human beings with their own political convictions, with their own political ideas. And however objective you will try to be, of course, you will not even start a research program if you don't sort of believe in what that means to you from a political as well as from a scientific point of view. We aren't going to get to the bottom of what science is in this podcast, but let's just say that when I say science, I mean all of it, the whole system, from the objective ideals of empiricism right through to the fallible, squishy scientists talking about their experiments down the pub. But asking what we mean when we say science is only half the picture here. We also have to ask, what is politics? And again, that is a slippery thing to define, 
but after talking to some political scientists, there does seem to be a very broad definition that they agree on. Here's Shabita Parasarafi, a researcher of science and policy at the University of Michigan. You're going to hear a lot from Shabita throughout the series. So politics, generally speaking, is really about power. And it's about power dynamics, relationships of power. And when we think about it in the context of decision making, then we're really talking about people who are maneuvering in order to gain power or maintain it, um, sometimes also exert it reinforce it. And often they're doing that on the basis of their particular interests. We talk about interests, whether they're economic interests or political interests. And sometimes they're just really about the differences in values. Now, it would be impossible to argue that there aren't power dynamics within the world of science. Just check out any lab meeting that's going on. But there is still something about empiricism and objectivity which sticks to science which gives it a separate identity. And that identity has been used to argue that science should have some, at least perceived, objective independence from everything else, by which I mean politics. Here's Shabita again. Science and politics benefit from the perception that science is objective and separate, because that means that politicians can say science agrees with me. This objective evidence, this objective knowledge is on my side, right? And that's distance. And so therefore, I am more authoritative in my decision for that reason. And you see that, you know, sort of early on in the COVID crisis, for example, Boris Johnson was often using that kind of language, right? So it performs that sort of function. By the same token, science also benefits from appearing objective because it appears authoritative. And in recent history, the value of this perception has been demonstrated by the way scientists wanted state funding to work. Here's science historian and science communication researcher Bruce Lewinstein. So coming out of World War II, scientists were making a rhetorical argument that science should be independent of politics. And they were doing that partly because they believed there to be an overlap in the ideals of science and what was seen as the winning side of the war, the Western democracies that won the war, but partly because, as with any group, they wanted to protect their funding. They wanted to have control of their funding. There was a lot of pushback from legislators, but it took five years to produce what's now called the National Science Foundation. And much of that time was a dispute over who would control the funding. In the end, there was a compromise. The NSF became sort of quasi-independent. Independent scientists decide what is funded, but a president still appoints the board. Around the world, similar compromises of varying degrees were made, and organisations like that of the National Science Foundation in the US sprung up. Think about the research councils in the UK, or the Council of Scientific and Industrial Research in India. These agencies act as intermediaries, helping to direct state funding. But the compromises they were founded upon, and the fact that government is giving them the money, is a big stumbling block for independent science. As much as researchers may want independence from political systems, as much as they may seek separation, they are people, 
people that need to get on in the world and people that need to make a living. And when money is involved, well, that's a whole other episode. Next time. Science would like to be independent. Scientists like the argument that they are independent of politics. And yet, insofar as their funding comes through political processes, they are fundamentally, I mean, it's just, it's inescapable that science and politics are intertwined if your funding comes through the political system. As they say in Scotland, who pays the piper calls the tune. This episode was produced by me, Nick Howe, with editing from Noah Baker and Benjamin Thompson. It featured contributions from many people, including Shabita Parasurafi, Alice Bell, Dan Sarowitz, Anna Jay, Melinda Baldwin, Magdalena Skipper, Stephen Shapin, David Edgerton, Deborah Blum, Bruce Lewinstein, and Chiara Ambrosio. Quotes from social media were read by Sharni Bundell, Flora Graham, Dan Fox, Edie Edmondson, and Brendan Marr. And excerpts from Nature were read by Jen Musgrave. Thanks for listening. Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.